Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. I'll be with you for the next 20 or 25 minutes to discuss another interesting topic related to multifamily real estate investing, the argument against doing a 1031. Now, I know some of you are already saying, wait a minute, you guys like 1031s, and you're correct. A 1031 exchange is an important element in the Mara polling strategy for building wealth over long periods of time. And there are absolutely reasons not to do a 1031. We're going to explore those today. If you'd like some more information on any of the items we're going to talk about today, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A. P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And you can always swing by the Learning Center at marapolling.com. Lots of good material there, past webinars, downloads, uh, some, uh, the free information kit, which has some good material on 1031s and our second generation strategy, which is uh, in part driven by 1031s. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. What is a 1031? Before we make the argument against it, let's make sure we understand what it is. So a 1031, a 1031 exchange, a like-kind exchange, for those of you that might have a little uh, more experience in life, like I do, a starker exchange is another term you may have heard for this. It is a exchange of properties that allows you to defer the tax liability associated with that sale. This is a real estate thing we get to do. One of the nice things about owning real estate and why you ought to have some commercial multifamily in your portfolio is the tax advantages, which include having the ability to do a 1031. Now, you can do a 1031 as an individual, right, with a piece of property you own, or you can invest in a fund like our fund uh, that uses 1031s as part of their ongoing strategy. Not all investments are going to be structured to be able to take advantage of 1031, so that's something to keep an eye out for. In a 1031, when you sell an asset that has gain associated with it, as well as some depreciation that you've taken over time, the tax liability associated with that can be rolled into the next property. It's a deferral of tax. It does not allow you to eliminate that tax, except in one instance that I'll touch on briefly. It does allow you to uh, take those dollars and use them interest-free from the federal government, right? So if there's a million dollars in tax exposure and you're at a, let's say it's a 30% combined rate that you'd be looking at, there's $300,000 in tax that would need to be paid. By doing a 1031, you get access to that $300,000 until such time as you sell that property or sell whatever the final replacement is and the tax bill comes due. In that meantime, that 300,000 is working hard for you. And by the way, when you do sell eventually and pay that tax bill, you're paying with future dollars. So not only do you get to use those dollars in the interim, when you sell later on, you're paying back with dollars that are worth 78 cents or 65 cents or 57 cents or whatever the number is that they happen to be worth based on how long uh, you've held these various positions. The other benefit you potentially get is what I just described uh, a moment ago, which is it is possible to eliminate that tax completely. Now, you won't be excited about it, but your heirs will. 
At your passing, it's possible if you have titled your assets correctly that you can experience a step up in basis. And that step up in basis can wipe out those, uh, those gains uh, and the tax associated with them. So sounds great. Sounds like lots of good reasons to do a 1031. What is the argument against a 1031? All right, so I've got eight items listed here in no particular order. This just happens to be how they, uh, how they flowed out of my pen earlier today. First up, it's a hassle. You know, this is this selling a property is challenging enough. There's enough different moving parts involved. Now you're going to involve an intermediary. What's an intermediary? Well, it's another person that's going to be in the middle of your transaction. And you've got more paperwork you have to execute. Your accountant's got to be much more intimately involved, and you need an accountant that is sharp and capable. So for those of you that are contemplating investing in real estate or have already taken that leap, uh, you're going to want to have a CPA who has experience doing this kind of work, who has experience with 1031s. And if you don't have that, then you got to go find one. So like I said, there's a lot of hassle involved in this. It's not, a, it's not simply checking a box on a form and voila, you have a 1031. Uh, next. You're on the clock. There's a time limit to 1031s. 1031s aren't, well, sell that property and get around to buying another one whenever you feel like it. No. Within 45 days of the sale of the initial property, you have to identify at least one, if not as many, you can identify as many as three, but you have to identify at least one property that you're going to exchange into. 45 days. Miss that and you potentially are out of luck, right? You don't, you don't, you're not going to get your 1031. And in addition to that 45-day clock, there's a six-month clock, 180 days from the time that you have sold that original asset until the next acquisition has to be closed, right? So if you're selling a property today, in six months, you have to own that new property. If you don't, even if you identified it within the 45 days, you got to meet the six-month time frame as well. So you got to be able to do both of those. So you're on the clock. So there's a little bit of pressure there. Okay. It costs money to do this, right? As I mentioned, you're going to have your CPA involved. My guess is your CPA is not a volunteer. He's going to ask for some money. She's going to ask for some money. So you're going to have some fees there. You may have an attorney uh, that spends a little bit of time working on your documents. You're going to have this intermediary that I mentioned. Uh, none of those in and of themselves are enough to tip the apple cart over and say, oh, this isn't worth doing, but there's cost that's involved. And you need to make sure you understand what those are. And we'll talk about scale here in a, in a bit. Uh, at smaller scales, those costs are effectively fixed. To talk to a CPA about a 1031, whether it's a $10 million sale or a $100,000 sale, you're having the same conversation. And if it's the first time you've done a 1031, it's probably a longer conversation. So potentially on smaller assets, it might even be more expensive from that standpoint. So there's costs involved. Next, this intermediary I mentioned, they've got your money. When you sell this asset, you don't take all that cash and go stick it in the bank while you're looking for this new property. The intermediary is hanging on to all that, right? So at the closing, that money routes through them. 
because you're doing an exchange. And if you actually look at the dance that's done, and you can find a lot of this, a lot of good material online about this, and your CPA is going to fill you in, you're not actually selling this. You're transferring uh, these responsibilities in and out through this intermediary such that it really is an exchange of an asset. That's, that's the way it has to work. That's the structure of all of this. Um, and when you use that intermediary, uh, not only do they cost money, but those dollars of yours, right? So if you've got not just a million dollars in gain, but you've got $4 million in proceeds, those proceeds are all gonna sit with that intermediary. You can't get your hands on them again, potentially for as long as six months. It's also possible that your 1031 may not work, right? There's a whole bunch of issues we just identified that could cause it not to take place, right? Um, you could have an issue with uh, the timing. You could have an issue with uh, the costs being too significant. You could have an issue with just the hassle and not getting everything organized well enough. Um, and if it doesn't work, you end up with something called boot. Um, you got to love all these terms, right? Uh, boot basically is the, the taxable uh, exposure that you have, right? So if you end up with boot, you're paying the tax man anyway. So it's possible that you may end up having some tax exposure, a lot of tax exposure. And if you don't hit some of the dates and the other things, you could end up with all the tax exposure you would have had without a 1031 and having spent all the time and energy and money and hassle trying to get it done. So um, there's work involved in this. Probably one of the biggest reasons not to do a 1031 is because you're on the clock, because there's hassle involved, because of all these other issues, there's a lot of pressure, right? There's a lot of, okay, I've got to find another property. And the 1031 can take on a life of its own. It can become the objective. And in our eyes, a tax advantaged opportunity, whether it's a 1031 or depreciation or whatever it might happen to be, those are absolutely great to take advantage of. They are never the objective. So when you're doing a 1031, really have to be careful that you don't fall into the trap of, I've got to do a 1031. I have, I have to get this done. And in doing so, you pay too much for a good asset. Worse yet, you pay too much for a bad asset. And now, while you've deferred some tax, remember it's a deferral, not an avoidance. You've, while you've deferred tax, you, you've now got a problem child on your hands. You've got a property that's not going to perform. It's extremely possible, if not even likely, that the lack of performance from a bad property will strip away any value you received from the 1031. Oh, and by the way, down the road, when you sell that bad property and get out by the skin of your teeth and are thankful that you got out what you put into it, you're going to have a tax bill from the 1031. So in our eyes, the number one reason not to do a 1031 is because you can't find a good property, the right property that's gonna be a fit for you. Now, that doesn't mean they're not out there. That doesn't mean there aren't good properties to purchase. That doesn't mean that you've done anything incorrectly in your process. 
there's timing and there's what's available in the market you're looking for. There's all sorts of reasons why you might not find a property that's going to work for your 1031. You need to be prepared if you're going to look at 1031s, you need to be prepared to walk away and not do the 1031 and to simply say, I couldn't find the right property. And the good news is because of the 40 to five day clock, you're gonna know that about six weeks after you close on the sale of your original asset. Because if you haven't identified anything, you're not doing a 1031. You, it's simply a sale of that particular asset. Scale, talked about scale a moment ago that that uh, would be something that comes into play. It absolutely does. If you have a duplex that you purchased for $200,000, You've been making a nice return off of it. You've got an opportunity to sell that and realize a $50,000 gain. And you've got some depreciation that you've done on it as well. You might say, wow, this is great. I want to do a 1031. I've been listening to all the different podcasts and boy, this 1031 is a great thing. It's one of the reasons I like real estate. I want to do a 1031. And you look at this entire list and you're, okay, I can deal with that and I can deal that. You can deal with all of the issues that you've got here fantastic it may make a lot of sense for you and you should do the math to determine if in fact just paying the tax is a better deal for you if you don't know how much tax you're actually looking at then you can't really determine if a 1031 is ultimately the right strategic decision for you so if you haven't talked to your cpa yet you need to go sit with the CPA and have them walk through the numbers with you to identify exactly what the uh, proceeds are, the gain that needs to be rolled into the new asset and how that'll need to be structured and what kind of debt structure you'll have to have and what size asset you'll need and all the other pieces that are involved. And then after you've done that, he or she can tell you, if you don't do a 1031, you're looking at X dollars in tax then you can make the decision, is that significant enough, right? Now, if you're looking at a $50,000 gain, maybe that'll be significant enough, maybe it won't. If you're looking at the million dollar gain we talked about a moment ago, well, that's potentially, like I said, maybe $300,000 in tax. That might, that might absolutely be enough. If you're looking at $10 million in gain on a large commercial property, that absolutely sounds like it makes a lot of sense. You're talking two and a half, three million, three and a half million dollars, potentially something in that neighborhood, depending upon where people live uh, in terms of tax exposure, that those dollars could be used and kept, uh, kept working. So scale is important and you've got to understand that. Now, this final one is tied into that a little bit, and that is um, rates. So Everybody, I think, intuitively understands that long-term capital gains rates are advantageous. They are lower than ordinary income rates. Do you actually know what your long-term capital gain rate is? Because there is, there is not a long-term capital gain rate at the federal level. There are three of them, 20%, right? So earners that are in high income brackets, right? So if you're a married couple, for example, and you make more or less $500,000 or pretty close to $500,000, you're in that 20% bracket. If you're not there, right? If you make less than that, 
you could be in the 15% bracket, all the way down to roughly around $80,000. If your income is less than $80,000, and depending upon how your financial life is structured, you may in fact be experiencing a capital gain, but have income that is below this roughly $80,000 number, your capital gains rate is zero. So it's completely possible when you go in and talk to your accountant that what she's gonna tell you or what he's gonna tell you is you're not paying 20%, you're only paying 15. Or it's even possible they might say, if you did this this year because of your income situation, you wouldn't pay anything. So it's an important conversation to be able to have with your accountant to understand how that, how that works for you personally. Now that's federal, right? So look at the federal rates, that's important. States all treat this differently. Some states simply treat it as personal income, right? There is no capital gains treatment to it. Uh, some states have a capital gains rate, right? They, they treat it that way. As you look across the country, there are many, many states, looking at a little list right now, uh, we got one, two, three, four, five, six. It's a quick look. Seven, eight, looks like eight, maybe nine states where the state tax rate on capital gains is zero. So you're only looking at the federal number. There are other states where it's modest. I see a 4%, I see a 3%, I see a bunch of 5%ers, another 4%. Ooh, there's a 9%, there's another 9%, and then there's dear old California, right? Where we're, uh, we're up in the double digits. So uh, your state could have a role in whether or not you choose to do a 1031. So again, sitting with your CPA, doing the math, so you make sure you understand how all that works. So there's lots of reasons, as you can see, why you wouldn't wanna do a, a 1031. It's just a pain to do it. You're on the clock. You might get forced into or feel forced into making a bad decision and purchasing a bad deal. It might not be that bad just to go ahead and pay the tax, right? There's, a, there's just a lot involved. So if those are the arguments against a 1031, why do we, why does Mara Poling use a 1031 as part of our second generation income strategy? So our second generation strategy is this, we purchase an asset, we grow the value in that asset by growing its net operating income at a certain point in time. We'll make the decision to take that property to market. When we sell it, we would like, if we could, to do a 1031. That 1031 allows us to take the gain on that asset plus other tax exposure that we have and defer it. And by deferring it, we get that interest-free loan that I talked about from the federal government. And on top of that, we get to pay those dollars back with future dollars that are worth less than today dollars. So we see a lot of value in that. We're structured for it, right? So the hassle factor is not an issue based on the way we have structured our fund and our other investments. And we'd be happy to share more details about that with you if you are interested. We're experienced. We have done a lot of 1031s. We've been involved in those transactions extensively. Uh, this is not going to be a new experience for us. Our team has a lot of experience with it, whether it's our accounting team, the CPAs that we use, the transaction attorneys, and so on. 
we're efficient at it, right? So the cost to execute a 1031, and this is another scale issue, not only are we efficient at it, but we're executing 1031s on $5 million assets, $10 million assets, $20 million assets, and so on. Assets that are large enough that the amount of deferral that's taking place is substantial, easily outweighing the costs associated with it. The other piece, obviously, is by being at scale, we get some significant leverage, some significant value out of being able to defer those, uh, those tax liabilities. Uh, we have an asset that we uh, recently transacted on where we are looking at about a $600,000 deferral of actual tax, right? So tax liability beyond that, but about a $600,000 deferral of tax. Well, that $600,000 we get to use for a year, for three years, for five years, maybe for 10 years, maybe for 15 years. Who knows how long we might hold that property or continue to 1031 that property where that tax would get deferred. That's $600,000 that's going to earn 40, 50, $60,000 a year in cash for our investors. That's going to grow in value itself to 700, 800, 900,000, a million dollars and so on. And someday we will pay the $600,000 in tax way down the road after we've made a lot of money off of having it. So having scale, having a structure, having experience, having the efficiencies to be able to do it, allow us to address most of the issues. We can still fall victim to the biggest issue I talked about though, and that is because you're on the clock, you can be forced into making a bad decision and buying a bad deal, which is why as much as we like 1031s, we're simply never gonna do a deal just to get a 1031 done. We don't do it. We don't think it makes sense for any of you to do it in your individual transactions. If you're talking to other sponsors out there and 1031 comes up, it's a great topic to discuss and ask them what are their protocol, what are their procedures for making sure that they don't make a bad decision simply to get a 1031 accomplished. Because as we were just saying, if we can save $600,000 in tax right now, that's great. It doesn't do us any good though if we end up buying a property that's not gonna perform and that's in the end gonna cost us a lot more than 600,000 because someday we're gonna pay that $600,000 anyway. I hope you've enjoyed today's topic. 1031s I think are quite interesting. I'd love to chat with you about them. Feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Swing by the Learning Center. Please listen to us next week, so make sure you're subscribed and listen to us next week for our next episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poland.